we're probably all familiar with the, uh, the community or the social situation where you have to meet and to keep up with a whole host of stuff to be accepted and, and to belong. So often we see this in uh, religious communities where you have to uh, know how to speak and to act and to dress and, and what to do to belong and be part of what's going on. Indeed, maybe some of you felt come to church today, you weren't sure quite what that was going to look like. And if so, I just want to say, please don't worry. We try to stay in this church. People just come as you are. You don't have to kind of do things or, or, or be a certain way to be with us as a church. But it's not just in religious communities. It's also in, in other places we see this. So if you think of the culture of somewhere like the uh, Belfry Golf Club, which maybe will come up in a moment. Maybe you guys could try and click that through. Um, where if you think there, you need lots of money. You need a, a certain car. You have to have the right contacts. You have to be able to play to a certain standard golf, I guess, in order to belong. But also, and this one may surprise you, what about the gangs of Birmingham? Whether it's the Burger Bar Boys or the Johnson Brothers or whatever, where you've got to dress right, you've got to know the music, you've got to be into drill, and you've got to be able to speak right and act a certain way in order to belong in that community. You've got to be man enough to cut it. See, the point is, uh, just as we start, is that we all form these kind of social groups and these communities around external stuff that counts us in or out. And often it's these unspoken things. No one's saying these are the rules of belonging here, but we just kind of get when we're in a place that we have to fit in with a certain way of being. And if you keep up the appearances, then you're okay and you belong. And if you don't, well... You know what happens. Actually, I think we see that all over the place. And that need for a sense of acceptance, I think, is nothing more than an expression of our needing the acceptance of the God who made us, the God who loves us. And we will return to that idea later. I know that's a big one to drop in now. But that's exactly what's going on in, in the part of the Bible we're going to read today, Mark chapter 7. Um, and if you could pick up one of these red Bibles, it's really helpful to have this open. It's on page 1000. And 10, 1010, Mark chapter 7. And Mark has written for us a biography of Jesus' life. We've been working through it as a church the last few months. So those of you who are here today, you're kind of dropping in to the middle of the story. And Mark's story is an eyewitness perspective that was written in Rome about 30 years after Jesus had uh, died and risen from the dead. And so we're in the middle of this eyewitness perspective of the stuff Jesus said and did. It's Mark Chapter 7, page 1010. I'm going to read um, from that big um, number 7 in the top left for, for the first few verses. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered round Jesus and saw, um, and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding on to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not uh, eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating their food with defiled hands? You see what's going on? It's that kind of thing, community of acceptance going on here. This religious elite have come from the capital, Jerusalem, and they've gone up to the northern kind of backwaters of Israel, up in Galilee. They've heard about this guy, Jesus, who's this new teacher creating a stir, and they're going up to check out what's going on. 
And these guys are the top of the tree in that society. In a very religious society, they're the religious elite. They know about religion. They know about the rules and regulations of religion. They take their faith seriously. And as they come up to uh, the Galilee and the surrounding region, they are concerned. You see, because this ceremonial washing is really important to them. These social customs that kind of rule their community, that count people in or out. And they see Jesus' disciples, and they aren't doing all of these washing and other ceremonies and rituals. And they say, this is not acceptable. And in their view, it's also not acceptable to God. That's why uh, there's a word that was used a couple of times there, defiled, in verses 2 and 5. See, this washing isn't about hygiene, but it's about uh, being ritually pure, being morally cleansed. It's a Godward thing. You know, for many, Christianity is just another way of playing that kind of game of counting people in and counting people out. People think there's a whole load of rules and customs that you've got to get good at doing to look like you are impressive. To look like you are just fine, you're part of the in crowd. I'm good with God because look, I can do all this stuff. Of course God accepts me, I'm a regular at church. I look respectable. That's how so many think about Christianity. We're going to return to that later to address that as an idea. But I want us to see the two big problems with this kind of community of acceptance where it's based on what we're doing to be in or out. And here are the two big problems. One is that it's powerful at changing our behavior. But the second one is it's not powerful at all at changing our hearts. It changes our behavior, but not our hearts. Let's look back from verse 6 where I stopped. And this is in relation to changing behavior. He replied, that's Jesus. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is korban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. You see, when we get a community like this, those who are in have got to protect the community. They've got to act like the gatekeepers. And so they become exclusive and judgmental. And so here these leaders come and criticize Jesus' disciples because they're trying to protect their community and, and what it means to belong. And when you get a community that exists like that, whether it's religious or non-religious, it's bad news, both for those on the inside and the outside. Imagine if I turned up, and those of you who know what car I drive, it's a beaten up old Mazda, it's got like paint chipped off and dents all over it and that kind of thing. Imagine if I turned up to the Belfry Golf Club driving that car. It'd be obvious straight away, I don't belong here, I do not meet the standards. And I'd probably be made to feel like it, wouldn't I? You can imagine that. But also those on the inside. What about the young lads in our city who are caught up inside gang culture? 
Why do they shoot and stab people on our streets? We've seen plenty of it lately. Well, often this is the reason. It's fear. And it's fear that they are not getting the respect and the approval from others that they so desperately need and long for in their social circle. And that fear is greater than the fear of committing something pretty evil like murdering someone and the possible consequences. You see, that behavior is seeking acceptance. It's seeking belonging. And inevitably, in that kind of community, whatever it is, it leads to hypocrisy, where action, actions don't line up with beliefs. And we see that here in verse 6, where Jesus slams these religious leaders. He quotes from earlier on in the Bible, this um, prophet Isaiah, who God spoke through 700 years earlier. He says, what Isaiah said, that is just you. That is exactly you. You honor God with your lips, and your hearts are far away from him. And so your worship of God is totally useless. You see, these guys here in Mark 7, they're enforcing the tradition of the elders. It's there in verses 3 and 5. They've taken the commands that God gave about ceremonial washing, these commands about how the priests are to do certain ritual washing. And, And they've basically kind of totally taken it into overdrive, turned the volume up. And they've got this whole added loads of rules and regulations on ceremonial washing. They're now forcing it on everyone. And so they claim to follow God. They claim to be concerned with what God says, but in reality, it's their own traditions that they're peddling. Their own rules, their own regulations, their own traditions have become more important to them than the words of God. And so we read that God's word is effectively nullified, cancelled out. It's just useless because they've set it aside. And that's about what we see here is God is kind of shrinking so small in their view of the world, kind of seen in the rear view mirror, that they're not actually even really concerned of where people are at with God. No, all they're concerned about now is whether people are keeping their rules. That's why they come and accuse these disciples. It's a terrible thing, isn't it, when our Christianity becomes so focused on our own little rules, our own little regulations, our ideas that God just shrinks into the background. This is kind of illustrated here with this practice of of Corban from verse 9 onwards. Basically, this thing is they found a clever way to to get around the pretty clear requirements of God's word for honouring your parents. And they found a way to kind of sidestep that and still look spiritually impressive and acceptable. Now, we haven't got time to explain the context of verse 10, where it talks about a death penalty judgment for not honouring your parents. Um, but if you have got questions about that, then we'll, you can come and find me afterwards, and we, we can talk about that. But clearly, it's important to God that we honour our parents, and it was in Israel. And what these guys have done is they've developed this thing called Korban, where you could devote things to God, whether it's your time, or, or your money, or your possessions. And so if you devoted them to God, then you could get out of having to use them for the sake of your parents. So you couldn't help or serve your parents, especially when they were elderly, even if they really needed you. In fact, if you devoted something to God, you were not permitted from then using that to help your parents. It was clever. So they'd found a way of looking spiritual, looking really holy, but really they were just looking to neglect their basic duties to their parents some of the most basic duties that God had given to his people 
in, in his words. See, it's a challenge to us. It's a challenge to us if we attempted to neglect our godly responsibility to our parents as they age. Because we're kind of off doing something that seems more impressive, more spiritually impressive and more committed, so we're going to neglect the duty that God calls us to. I hope in what is a young church, we will not fall foul of that. But listen, this is what a community of performance does. It changes behaviours. It deals externally. It counts people in and out. And then it just leads to this kind of exclusivity, this self-righteousness, and this hypocrisy. Yes, it changes behaviour, but not in a positive way. But listen, there's a bigger problem, and that's the second thing I said. And that is that it has no power to change the heart. I want to try and illustrate this. So, um, Kath, you can help me. I'm going to give you a drink. You can, you can stay sat there, it's okay. Well, you can stand up if you want, but no need. Um, I'm going to give you a drink. Uh, which, which cup do you want? You're going to go for this one. Okay, great. All right. I'll just put this one here. It, yeah, it's, it's really happening, yeah. Okay, if you just give it to me. Okay, well, that's yours. Thank you. I'm just going to pour me one as well. Kath, do you want to change your mind? Yeah. <laughs> there you go, there you go. You don't have to drink it. <laughs> Silly illustration, isn't it? But listen, this, this, this glass, it's, it's lovely and clean on the outside. It's a nicely washed glass, yeah? This one is anything but. But listen, it does not matter what's on the outside. It's what's on the inside that really matters. If you want a fresh drink, you know which one you're going to choose. Listen, bear that in mind as we read on in verse 14. Jesus picks up similar kind of imagery. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. And saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these come from inside and defile a person. You see, Jesus tells this short little parable to say that the true problem of our defilement is inside and not outside. Our acceptance problem is not primarily about our actions and behaviour, but it is about what is going on in the depths of our hearts. This author who, who I quite like, I find helpful, is a guy called James Smith. And in a book called You Are What You Love, he says this, Our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behaviour flow. Listen, he got that idea from the Bible. And that's why the Bible says people look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God looks at the control centre of our being, who we really are in the depths. 
You know, we like to say in our culture, follow your heart, don't we? And I think the assumption smuggled in behind that is that um, your heart will lead you to good places uh, and your heart will lead you in good ways. And if you follow it, then it's going to be good for you. But do you see Jesus' description of the hearts there in verses 21 and 22? It's deeply troubling. It's not all sunshine and smiles for us, but also in our hearts there are evil acts and attitude. These things that aren't often easy to detect, hidden in the secret motives and desires and inclinations. And so it's often when people say they're following their hearts that they're about to have an affair or they're greedily acquiring more and more stuff. Or they're telling white lies to save face. Or they're getting comfortable with their casual prejudice and racism. So often that's what people who follow their hearts start to look like. Now listen, you might be insulted by Jesus' description of our hearts. But I think if we're honest and if we reflect, we see these things in us. We do see these things in us. And so communities that are relying on these kind of man-made external rules that might clean us up on the outsides, might count us in with people because suddenly we've learned how to do something impressive. We might look respectable and accepted, but they're totally, totally powerless to, ca- to heal the cancer of our soul. In actual fact, even worse, they do the opposite. They create and encourage ways of expressing evil in our hearts that are culturally acceptable. And so things become seen as virtues and are promoted. So in business, arrogance is honoured as self-confidence. In the sports team, sexual impurity is manly. In the staff room, slander is being in the know. On the streets, murder is honour. Do you see how these communities just warp everything? Listen, there's, there's bad news and there's good news today. I didn't give you a choice which you got first. That's the bad news. You'll be glad to hear that. And this is it here. The bad news is that seeking acceptance based on what we do for ourselves is impossible. It's impossible. And most people think Christianity just offers another version of that. But it doesn't. It's impossible. We don't just have to do stuff to be in with Jesus. This is the good news. And this is the good news of Christianity. That we can receive acceptance based on what Jesus can do for us. And that applies to whoever you are, whatever you've done. We can receive acceptance based on what Jesus has done for us. Let's look back at Mark and pick up uh, verse 24 under that heading. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syria and Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go, the demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the whole region of the Decapolis. There some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. 
After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spat and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven with a deep sigh, said to him, Apatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosed, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Sorry. <clears throat> so here Jesus goes out on this journey through uh, modern Lebanon and Syria. And these are these less uh, Jewish territories. This rebellious region, actually a few hundred years before, had fought against the Jews in, in, in a local war at the time. Think of it like this. Imagine the EU president, uh, Jean-Claude Juncker, going to uh, Boston in Lincolnshire, which apparently is the most pro-Brexit part of the UK. So the EU president arrives in kind of the most hostile part of the UK to, to him. And, and the people that Jesus goes and meets in this region are, are, are people who don't really have it going for them either. So in verse 25, we read about this unnamed woman. We read that she's Greek, emphasizing she's not Jewish. She's Syrian Phoenician, which is kind of a pagan background. And her daughter is uh, demon-possessed. Spiritually, everything about this woman is unclean, okay? That's what we need to see. Now, in fact, scholars say that of all people who approach Jesus in Mark's gospel, this woman has the most stacked up against her. She is the most uh, of, of an outsider, if you like, from a Jewish perspective. Even more than, I don't know, Leicester City winning the premiership in 2016. You know, that was massive odds. You know, this is even longer odds. And the man, too, that we read about afterwards, he is himself deaf and mute. He's relying on his friends to bring him to Jesus. He's got a whole host of things stacked up against him as well. So listen, these people are not people who can keep up appearances. They're not people who can get the approval of the community by performing and by doing stuff and by keeping in with the crowds. As far as being on the outside uh, um, and, and being kind of accepted or, or whatever else and being clean, they've got no confidence in themselves. Before others or before God's. Nothing going for them. And so they share two things. Firstly, they share a desperate awareness of their own brokenness and need. Do you see what they both do as they come to Jesus? It's there in, in verses 26 and also 32. The thing that they do when they come is that they beg him. The woman falls down at his feet and, and, and is persistently pleading, persistently begging is the idea. You see, beggars know that they are in a desperate state. They know they can't help themselves. They're not looking for some human rules or, or some ideas or some new way of life to follow. They're desperate for help from someone outside who can help them. Someone who can be gracious to them. If we think that we've got it all together, if we think we're okay, we can keep up appearances, we can be accepted by the community around us. And probably if God was there, he'd accept us too. We will never, ever get Jesus. He will not make any sense to us. We'll never see our need for him. We will never come before him as a beggar. He will only ever be an accessory to our life, something to tag onto the side. 
Christians are nothing more than this. They are nothing more than desperate beggars who have discovered the bread of life. That's all we are. Desperate beggars who have discovered the bread of life. So they're desperately aware of their brokenness and need, but they also share a humble and a bold faith. And that's why they come, even audaciously. They're not bringing what they've done or what they can do, but they come empty-handed and they're seeking to be filled and to receive. It's so clear with this Greek woman in particular. At first, it seems like she's kind of rebuffed by Jesus. In verse 27, and it seems like he's pretty rude to her. I mean, basically, he tells a parable that calls her a dog. And that doesn't kind of, I don't think that translates well in many cultures. And it's strong imagery. But we need to see that it isn't uh, an insult or like a racist attitude uh, in just taking on the racist attitudes of the day. See, Jesus knows his mission is firstly for the children of Israel. Those are the ones he's come to spiritually feed. Those are the people he's come to rescue. Not the non-Jews who in that day were commonly referred to as dogs. People who are unclean and ignorant and godless and pagan. Jesus said, as far as his mission goes at this point, she is an outsider. Do you know what? The interesting thing is, she isn't offended by this. She knows her place in the parable. She knows she's an outsider. And yet she wants in. And so in confident faith, she seeks what she knows that Jesus alone can do for her out of his grace and his compassion and kindness. She basically comes seeking a crumb from Jesus, a crumb falling off the table. What she gets is a whole feast. We read that in that moment, her daughter is freed from the demon. Similar with this deaf and this mute man, he comes humbly with faith. Actually, it's his friends that bring him. And his eyes are open and his tongue is loosened. That's what Jesus does for him. You see, Jesus offers acceptance and he offers grace and he offers healing for outsiders. It's not based on what we can do for him, but it's what he can do for us. That's the good news this morning. And despite being the most unlikely to get Jesus, despite being the biggest outsider, this woman here is the first person who actually hears and understands a parable in this gospel. Jesus' followers who have been with him for a long time by now, they still haven't got it. She's the first one who gets a parable and responds rightly. And by faith she receives what she could never get herself. Listen, Christians are not trying to get people to live more moral lives. Christians aren't offering another community of acceptance based on performance. That's not what we want to be about in this church. It's a horrible place to be when you become a church that is about that. And guys, listen, those of you here, if we do that, there'll be a whole load of subtle and not so subtle ways that we communicate to others around us that they are dirty that they don't belong, that they're not welcome, that they can't come here, that this church is not for them, that they are unfit for contact with us. That they've got to somehow clean themselves up before coming. You guys in the gate church, you know if we communicate that and if we believe that and if we act like that, then we are done for in our mission. The radical and the life-changing news is this, that people come dirty. They come unclean. They come defiled. They come unacceptable and unworthy. They come as outsiders. 
And they get acceptance and they get cleansing and they get wholeness and they get grace and they get love and they get healing and they get new hearts in Jesus. All of that is on offer because of his life, his death, his resurrection, his return to heaven. That is all that our acceptance is based on and what he has done. And you know, when you, when you experience that, when you encounter that, when that happens in the inner person in your heart, and what flows out of that is deep moral change over a lifetime. See, it's not that in this church we didn't pursue any standards of moral change. But we recognize that real change comes from being accepted. It comes from hearts being changed. It comes from the grace that we experience in Jesus. And that real change is then being conformed, being shaped into God's will, into God's likeness of God's words. It's not rules and regulations that we impose on one another. It's what God does to us. So, so we must stop trying to prove ourselves to others, trying to gain their acceptance. We're all doing it in our lives in, in, in some ways or others, aren't we? And we must humbly come to Jesus with nothing but faith and ask him and invite him to transform us from the inside out. Anyone can come. Anyone can. The biggest outsider, the most unclean, the totally defiled, anyone can come. Even today in your own heart, you can come to him. His grace is more than enough, and it's so what we need. He offers us the acceptance of the God who made us, and who loves us, and who will one day judge us. And that is amazing news. Which is why at verse 37, people say this. He has done everything well. Let's pray. Jesus, you have done all things well. You've lived a perfect life. You died a perfect death for us. So you rose again and now you live forever the way that you treated and spoke to people as you encountered them, the way you healed, the way you cast out demons, the way you rebuked those who, 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 who were, were speaking untruth, the way you taught, the way you do and continue to do all of those things in different ways today. Lord, we praise you and we thank you. We recognize we've got nothing to bring. We are beggars. We come with open hands, not bringing anything but looking confidently by faith looking to receive from you looking to have our hands filled thank you for your kindness that you will condescend to do that for us praise you amen